<clears throat> this is uh, case 99 from the Blue Cliff record. Sutsung's 10 body controller. <clears throat> the pointer. When a dragon howls, mist arises. When a tiger roars, wind arises. In the fundamental design of appearing in the world, gold and jade play together. In the strategic action of omnicompetence, arrow points meet each other. The whole world is not concealed. Far and near are equally revealed. Past and present are clearly described. But tell me, whose realm is this? To test, I cite this case to see. Main case. Emperor Sutsung asked national teacher Chung, what is the 10-body controller? The national teacher said, patron, walk on Virokana's head. The emperor said, I do not understand. The national teacher said, do not acknowledge your own pure body of reality. The verse. The teacher of a nation is also a false name. Nanyang alone may flaunt his good name, his good fame. <clears throat> In great tongue, he helped a real son of heaven. Once he had him tread upon Virokana's head. Then his iron hammer struck and shattered the golden bones. Between heaven and earth, what more is there? The lands and seas of 3,000 worlds by night are still and silent. I do not know who enters the blue dragon's cave. So thank you for coming here on a hot summer day. Thank you for logging in, joining us on Zoom. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to do, other things to do during the summer. And it can pose a challenge for us as practitioners, right? Maintaining a practice during summertime can be a challenge for us. The routines are interrupted, all kinds of kids' activities, vacations, family gatherings, and on top of that, the schedule of our formal Zen events is usually limited during July and August, which can also have an effect on the practice. And potentially, it could erode the individual resolve. In fact, it does often erode the individual resolve. Yet at the same time, this could be a great opportunity to expand our understanding of Zen beyond what is considered formal practice. Because it is beyond what is considered formal practice. So to go beyond that and to unleash the true and unhindered potential of this tradition, or our own potential as human beings. Whether an unstructured period such as summertime will erode your practice or expand it has everything to do with your reliance on structure and the degree to which you abnegate personal responsibility for your own practice. The formal structure of traditional Zen training, of course, can be highly effective in deconstructing the creation of our fixed sense of self. It works, it works really well. But we need to, get to know how to go beyond this and to keep it going, meaning to keep the practice alive on a momentary basis through generating a continuous sense of deep inquiry and curiosity. Regardless of location, regardless of the kind of activity we happen to be engaged with. Which means we need to constantly shift from reliance on familiarity 
to the vast openness of what is fresh, what is new, and essentially what is unknown. The threat to our practice is, is there, is our reliance on or, or the comfort that we draw from what is familiar, what is known. You know, as, as a teacher, I have many opportunities to speak with people about the practice. And through these conversations, I witness a great deal of commonality in terms of the way we experience life as human beings. Our attachments to a sense of security, our concerns about being judged by others, our fears about the unknown, and our longing to be at ease and experience a lasting sense of contentment. These are all universal. And people often express a sincere interest in discovering a more liberated way to live. I hear it a lot. Yet at the same time, there is often a reluctance to go beyond the familiar comfort of the sense of self and truly open up to embrace what we call practice. Or to embrace the unknown. It's probably better to maybe put down the idea of practice and call it by its true name, right? It's not really a practice as much as turning towards who we truly are. Meditation is about that, essentially, at its core, at its origin. You know, and the rising popularity of meditation practices over the maybe past 10, 15 years, I think offers a good window to our attachment to a fixed sense of self and our refusal, often refusal, to step beyond the familiarity we derive from it. We have taken, as human beings, we have taken an ancient tradition that is meant to deconstruct the self, and we have reduced it, reduced it to another self-benefiting activity to pick and choose from. Instead of allowing meditation to dissolve, we add it to the pile of stuff from which we pick and choose. So the question of how will it benefit me reveal something to us. I will take on the practice and I will commit to it as long as I'm convinced or you can convince me that I will benefit from it. So what are we saying when we, when we have this way of thinking, right? What exactly are we talking about in terms of meditation practice? What will it do for me? And so these days, there are many establishments that offer some version of meditation, as well as plenty of apps trying to capitalize on the rising popularity of this ancient tradition. And the danger with any practice tradition that becomes popular is the potential of diluting its original essence through a process of commoditizing it for the purpose of marketing, to as many people as possible. And how do we market to as many people as possible? We cater to the self. That's guaranteed to work. Try this, you will feel a lot better about yourself. By that, you will look a lot better. Other people will think you're great. But at its essence, the practice of meditation is a path to a radical transformation at the base. It is meant to penetrate the core of our existence, dissolve our self-created barriers, and provide a way for a human being to lead a liberated and deeply fulfilling life. The practice has the power to shed light on the roots of our propensities for home. So we can learn how to be in this world as a vehicle for goodness. 
So clearly commoditizing such a transformative and precious practice can greatly reduce it to something that can be sold or bought based on personal interests or desire. And it's a shame because it is, it is so much more than that. Because we are so much more than that as human beings. But we have reduced ourselves and we have naturally reduced the practice to a thought, to a concept, to an idea that we either take on or drop based on the feeling at that, on that day. At their inception, most spiritual tradi traditions share a common purpose to point at our original nature or source that unites everything that exists. We may call it God, Buddha nature, Atman, doesn't really matter. On a fundamental level, all practice traditions point to a unified reality, which means that on a deep level, we are all inherently interconnected, regardless of our differences. And while this is the truth of our existence as human beings, without intimately awakening to this inherent essence and personally, we have to highlight that personally, verifying it by experience, we remain cooped up within the confines of our illusory reality, which is what we refer to as a state of being deluded. And being deluded means that we're actually, we actually believe that the provisional self has a permanent or fixed nature. And this is our dreamlike imagined reality that seems to us as real, as convincing as could be. That's why it's so tempting. That's why we revere a worship, a self. That's why we are so attached to catering to it. So we ask, do I feel like doing something or not? And if the answer is no, I don't feel like doing it, then why the hell would I do it? It's clear. It's logical. But when we truly embrace a practice, any practice, on a full-time basis, we make an internal agreement to awaken from this dream through the practice of perfecting wisdom. Rajna Paramita. It's not an idea. It's not a Buddhist thing or Buddhist lingo. It's real. In the way of the Bodhisattva by Shantideva, there's a chapter on understanding and cultivating Prajna Paramita. And then he says in that chapter, when ordinary folk perceive phenomena, they look on them as real and not illusory. We don't think this is an illusion. We don't think I am, what I think about who I am is illusory. It's quite the opposite. It is real. And I need to defend, protect that illusion because it's not an illusion. So they look at them as real and not illusory. Forms and so forth, which we all perceive, exist by general acclaim, but not by valid reasoning. In other words, he's saying, take a look. As long as the conditions are assembled, illusions likewise will persist and manifest. Now the conditions are assembled, but we make sure that those conditions remain. 
through the way we think, through the way we speak, through the way we act, we perpetuate the conditions that give us the impression that there is a fixed self. Just look at the way you think, speak, and act. And you will see. You will see how it is born and how it perpetuates. And then he says, even if we know that all is like an illusion, how, you ask, will this dispel afflictive passion? Magicians may indeed themselves desire the mirage woman they themselves create. Of course, we fall in love with ourselves. The reason is, he says, they have not rid themselves of habits of desiring objects of perception. That's where it's at. That's what the addiction is. The addiction to a self. And when they gaze upon such things, their aptitude for emptiness is weak indeed. By training in this aptitude for emptiness, the habit to perceive real things will be relinquished. By training in the thought, there isn't anything, this view itself will also be abandoned. There is nothing. When this is asserted, no thing is there to be examined. Also, no thing, there is nothing there to be eradicated because there is nothing there to begin with. We try very hard to let go of, to go beyond. Trying to let go creates what we try to let go of. Pushing against create what we push against. Any idea that we hold on to, whether we love it or hate it, creates something. And that creation creates the self which is interacting with that. It's very deep. But at the same time, it's very a very, very much available to all as a practice, not as an idea to hold on to or to accept or reject. Only as a practice. So what Shantideva is saying is that we are living with, within a dream. And in that dream, our conventional mind creates a perception of reality in which self and other appear as unchanging, separate entities. And from within this illusory reality, that which is false appears as real, and that which is real appears as false. And because we are so used to seeing phenomena in such a way, we have become deeply attached to the object of our perception. We draw a sense of comfort and security from them, from all those perceptions, and don't have much desire to turn to emptiness. Because we cannot find perceptions there. We cannot find ourselves there. But as Shantideva says, we can go beyond the fixedness of our perceptions. And he says we have an innate capacity to do so. But to bring this capacity to fruition, we need to practice diligently. We need to understand what it means to practice diligently. It's not just showing up to this event or that event. It's not just sitting on a regular basis. 
So it is truly examining, it is truly being open and turning towards curiosity and preferring curiosity over known on a regular basis. It actually means to be interested in reality. He says, by training in this aptitude for emptiness, the habit to perceive real things will be relinquished. And by training in emptiness, we again and again turn towards that which is not fixed, unknown, scary at times. We know that from sitting and meditating, and even some beginners say that there is that sense, at some point there is that sense of as if the bottom is, is taken out and you are free falling. And the first thing we do, naturally, is run back to a thought, to a concept, to something that will give me some sense of self some sense of parameter, some structure in which I can find myself, in which I can find you as the other, in which I can make sense of this reality. Never mind, that's not true. I just want it to make sense. And then he says, by training in the thought, there isn't anything. There isn't anything, meaning there is nothing substantiated. It's not that there are no appearances, it's just that they are not substantiated, including the one seeing the appearances. So by training in that thought, this view itself will also be abandoned. There is nothing. When this is asserted, no thing is there to be examined. Maybe we try to hold. Maybe we have to learn to practice easy. Maybe we try too hard to look for something, thinking we will find something. But if, there, if we train ourselves in there is nothing, then it may be easier to just be. Right? Because this is what we're talking about. We're talking about turning to being, resting in being. Why do we find it so difficult, so challenging to rest in who we are, to rest in being? People often say at the beginning when they get involved in practice, they find it highly challenging to sit with themselves for 10, 15, 20 minutes. You got to wonder, why? And what does that even mean, right? If, if, I'm, if I'm uncomfortable being with myself quietly without being engaged with something or being entertained by something for 10, 15, 20 minutes, I have a big problem. I have a big problem because wherever I go, I have to be with that being. I can't get away from that. Then what am I saying? Sometimes people say meditation is not for me. Or my meditation is hiking, biking, sewing, playing with the kids, going to the beach or whatever. Well, how can that be, right? When, when, my mind, when I give my mind something to engage with, I am not spending time with purely being. I am on purpose giving something to occupy my mind with so I don't feel the core of my being. So I have some kind of a displacement activity that distracts me from truly being with the source, with the essence, with God. 
But again, we have to ask, why do we find it so threatening? The Dalai Lama commented on what I just read from Shantideva, and he said, while dreaming, all kinds of things may come to mind, but these are nothing more than appearances that do not exist objectively. Likewise, oneself, others, the cycle of existence and liberation, in short, all entities exist merely by the power of mind and convention. By the power of mind and convention, I conjure it up, therefore it exists. When I don't conjure it up, it does not exist. We have to see that for ourselves. But we can only see it for ourselves if we are diligently practicing and turning again and again towards emptiness, towards nothingness. Then we see that the somethingness is conjured up by my own mind. I am creating stuff to chew on. And I'm terrified when there is nothing to chew on for my mind. So he says, all of it exists merely by the power of mind and convention. In no way do they exist independently from the side of the basis of designation. While actually existing by the power of mind and convention, their mode of appearance is otherwise. Due to our habituation to ignorance, our habituation to ignorance, right? This is something we have to acknowledge. We are habituated to be ignorant. So he says, due to habituation to ignorance, since time without beginning, whatever good or bad things that appear to our six types of consciousnesses do not at all seem to exist by the power of subjective convention. Everything appears to exist from the side of its basis of imputation. That mode of existence that accords with such a deceptive manner of appearance is the subtle object of refutation. Thus, it is to be totally repudiated by means of scripture and reasoning. By means of scripture and reasoning. So yes, we do, we read, we study. And then we take it in and we contemplate on a personal level, individual level, we have to take it in. So scriptures and practice, whatever formal practice is, whatever we have created of it, we have to take it in and ask, what is this? What is it saying? What is it saying to me about me? Not what is it saying. Because the one who is reading, the one who is engaging with that, is the one who can be conjured up or not, based on our personal understanding, by experience. That's what it means to practice 24-7. When practice becomes a burden, and it does, I think for everyone. Then, we, then this is a blinking light telling us, I am not practicing correctly because I've created something of the practice to which I react. And this is what I have to let go of or see through or walk over, walk on that. Because it becomes a thing, when it becomes a thing, Practice starts to disintegrate. My resolve starts to erode. And I don't have time, I don't have energy, I don't want to do it anymore. The hell with that, I got the point. I'm going to go do something else with my time. 
because I lost interest. If I lose interest, then I never really understood what the practice is about in the first place. Because I created something which I lost interest in. Right? I create something, I like it for five minutes or ten years or whatever, then I don't like it anymore. But what is that saying? And what's the difference between me losing interest in that and a five-year-old getting a toy and playing with it for five minutes and then losing interest in that toy? It's the same thing. So the point is that we need to recognize our habituation to ignorance, as he says. <clears throat> Raise doubts about all our assumptions of self, other, and reality, and engage with the practice of wisdom from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep. It means to witness, to bear witness to how the idea of self begins to perpetuate in the mind and stay away from defending it by pushing against the idea of other or the other. Only when there is a fixed self, there is a fixed other. And there is a fixed practice. And there is a Buddha. When the idea of self is dropped, reality appears as it really is, interconnected, unified, core rising, in which there is no Buddha or non-Buddha. Because how could it be? It's just one thing. Not one against the other. It's just one thing. Which is not a thing. And so the pointer to this koan says, when a dragon howls, mist arises. It is describing this state of being. When the tiger rolls, wind arises. In the fundamental design of appearing in the world, gold and jade play together. In the strategic action of omnicompetence, arrow points meet each other. It is a high level of existing. When nothing is being conjured up in the mind, that's what is being experienced. The whole world is not concealed. There's nothing else. There's nothing to discover. Because nothing can be lost. Because everything is always appearing fully. Far and near are equally revealed. Then you can truly sit back and relax. Past and present are clearly described. But then whose realm is this? This is how it's... This is the question. Whose realm is this? Who is the one who can experience that? And so from within the dream, we talk about Buddhist practice. We discuss enlightenment and delusion. We divide grades and ranks. We see practitioners and non-practitioners. We see practice and no practice. And we set apart formal practice versus everyday life stuff. In the introduction to a case from the Shuroku, it says, playing with reflections, struggling for the form, you don't recognize that the form is the source of their reflection. Raising your voice to stop an echo, you do not know that the voice is the root of the echo. It's very clear. Again, we create that which we try to eradicate. We create that which is creating so much trouble and so much suffering and we claim that we want to be content and happy. Not taking any responsibility for the way we speak and act. Because we often don't know. 
because we often are deeply in a state of a dream. And in that dream, like any dream, it feels real. So from within a dream, Emperor Sutsung is asking National Teacher Chung, what is the ten body controller? Well, this is from which this is a place from which we ask about a practice. Right? The ten body controller is a, one of many epithets of the Buddha, referring to his all-encompassing abilities. And so Emperor Sutsung is basically asking about the highest form of Buddhahood. And the teacher in this case is Chung who was a successor of Huineng, sixth patriarch, and he served as the teacher of three successive emperors, hence the title, the national teacher. <clears throat> so one of the important roles of a Zen teacher, in this case Chung, is to take away anything the student is holding on to, to shatter any ideas we may be holding on to about ourselves, about reality, about Zen, and to completely flip our world upside down so there is nothing left to stand on. Of course, it can seem harsh or uncaring, but taking away everything, in taking away everything, this is an expression of the most loving and compassionate act of kindness. Because what we take away or what is being taken away is the barrier. So when there's nothing to stand on, nothing to grasp, there is freedom. There is nothing to defend, nothing to worry about. So Chung saw that the emperor was holding on to an externalized, cherished idea of a Buddha, which was placed on a high pedestal. So he flipped, around, he flipped it around by saying, patron, walk on Vairocana's head. And Vairocana Buddha represents the personification of the Dharmakaya, or the reality body and the physical manifestation of true wisdom as it appears in the world. Varukana is often depicted as the central figure of a mandala of five other Buddhas, or four Buddhas around is the fifth one. Each of the other four Buddhas occupy one of the four directions in relation to the central image and represents different qualities of wisdom. The central image, Varukana Buddha, embodies all the qualities of the other four Buddhas and usually painted in pure white to represent all colors. So it is a manifestation of that which is beyond appearance and yet, and yet, there is nowhere it cannot be found. Or there is nothing it is not inherent, already inherently therein. Everything has it. Everything is it. So Chung takes the most revered image of the Buddha and says, walk on his head. You know, the last of the ten great precepts, we make a vow to not defile the Buddha. Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's a interesting. It's the last precept that we work on. And to not defile the Buddha is often not what we think it is. Because to worship a Buddha, right, to put it above, is to defile. To create a separation is to defile. To think of oneself as not good or great is to defile. To see others separated from self is to defile. To think of oneself as fixed and unchanging is to defile. To think of a practice as something that we pick and choose is to defile. So it's a very big, important 
vow that we have to know how to maintain. Right? Any image we create in our mind creates a gap, creates a separation, if we attach to it. So Chung says, patron walk on Vairokana's head. And the emperor said, I do not understand. And the footnote says, why don't you understand these words? What a pity. And it is telling us, why don't we understand what he means? And it says, the details are not imported. The emperor should have immediately shouted then, what further need did he have to understand. Wanting to understand is holding on to something. Because wanting to understand is saying, I do not understand. I do not understand. I would like to understand. So what are we saying? What we're saying, I do not understand, right? There is something or someone looking at something, trying to figure it out. The trying to figure it out is creating the illusion of I don't understand. Well, obviously, as long as we do that, there is that sense of I don't understand. And from that sense of I don't understand, there will be frustration, there will be maybe a thought of or a decision to drop out of practice. A lot of it, all of it is just purely created in the mind, as the Dalai Lama said. So this is playing with reflection, struggling for the form. You don't recognize that the form is the source of the reflection. Now, the emperor did not realize that he himself was creating the confusion. And although his teacher went down to the weeds to meet him, he missed the point. So then the national teacher said, do not acknowledge your own pure body of reality. Changsha once said, students of the way do not know reality just because they acknowledge the conscious spirit as before. It's the root of countless eons of birth and death, yet fools call it the original person. So whatever it is that we, we realize and hold on to becomes that. And then we think, well, this is who I am now. If I'm not that, I'm this, right? If I'm not deluded, I'm enlightened. I am a Buddha. And he says, do not, be careful to not acknowledge anything as being you or you being it. He says, people right now just acknowledge this radiant awareness and immediately stare and glare, playing with their spirits. But what relevance does this have? What relevance does it have? It only creates a gap. It only creates a separation. Versus the teacher of a nation is also a false name national teacher. That's a name that was forced on him. But it's not different than my name, your name, titles, positions, colors, labels, gender, places. All of it is superimposed. And it makes sense because we need to function. But superimposed, it lacks any real substance or meaning. So all I'm defending is just that, is nothing. Because I, I see that as something that is substantiated. I 
in the footnote to that says, what is the necessity, a flower in the sky, the moon in the water, when the wind passes over, the treetops move. Right? Everything is always revealing the truth as it is, teaching reality, teaching the Dharma. Everything is teaching the Dharma. It's just that we are so often preoccupied with ourselves, with ourselves, with our own creation of a self, that we don't see. Nanyang alone may flaunt his good fame. That's, Nanyang was his name, national teacher. And this footnote says, after all, he cuts off the essential bridge. Among a thousand or ten thousand, it's hard to find one or half. It's hard to find. Not because we don't have the potential. Primarily, mostly because we are addicted to a self. In great tongue, he helped a real son of heaven. And the footnote says, pitiful. What is the use of teaching him? What is accomplished by teaching a blind patchrobe monk? What is accomplished by teaching, right? Because by teaching, you can, we can create something to hold on to. By not teaching, we don't disturb who we truly are. And once he had him tread upon Virakana's head, why doesn't everyone, footnote says, why doesn't everyone go like this? They would find heaven and earth. They, you, us, here today, why are we practicing like this? Why are we creating something of practice? Then his iron hammer struck and shattered the golden bones. He's happy. The footnote says he's happy in everyday life. It's already thus before saying so. It's already thus before we take on a practice. So we take on a practice to realize that it is already thus. But if we don't commit to a practice, we don't know otherwise. So sometimes it's thus, sometimes it's not. And we think it's a matter of luck or merits or whatever, or karma maybe, right? Between heaven and earth, what more is there? What more is there than this? What more do we think we need than this? There is so much beauty, yet we are so often caught up. And the footnote says, within the fast and boundless four oceans, there are few who know the whole body bears the load. He's scattering sand and dirt. The lands and seas of 3,000 worlds by night are still and silent. The footnote says, set your eyes high. Hold fast to your territory. Are you waiting to enter the ghost cave? I do not know who enters the blue dragon's cave. The blue dragon is, there's a legend, the blue dragon is in the cave holding on to a precious jewel. And the jewel is a metaphor to the essence of Buddhism. Now everybody may be trying to or attempting to get into the cave and snatch the jewel. Now who are these people, he's saying? Is there actually any need to go into a cave and snatch something from someone? But in reality, the jewel is you. But it doesn't feel this way. Right? Based on my own parameters, it's not like that. 
Ancient said, even if you cleaned everything and made yourself cut off your tracks and swallow your voice, still, in the school of the patriot monks, this is still the view of novices and children. You must turn your head around to the troubles of the world and fully arouse your great function. This is what we need to practice on a momentary daily basis, to turn the heads around to the troubles of the world. And within the trouble, arouse our great function. Within that. And Enshin said, if you do not give rise to any thought or practice or study within formless, you will always be, within your formless life, you'll always be free. Just discern that that which is always silent and still. Do not acknowledge sound and form. Just discern spiritual knowledge. Do not acknowledge false imagination. Do not acknowledge anything that passes in the mind. Do not validate it. Do not give it weight. Do not talk about it. Do not think about it. Do not act it out then it naturally is revealed as unsubstantiated. Naturally revealed as unsubstantiated. Talking about it, acting it out, is giving it life. So re-examine, please, re-examine what you consider Buddhism to be. Re-examine all your thoughts about practice, all your thoughts about formal practice, and throw it away. Thank you.